0: Welcome to the Michigan Minds Podcast, a quick and informative analysis of today's top issues from University of
1: Michigan faculty. Thank you so much for joining Michigan Minds. I'm really excited to talk with you today and learn from you. So I want to jump right in and get started Could you please introduce yourself to me and our audience and tell us about your role at the University of Michigan?
0: Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm Paul Resnick. I'm a professor in the School of Information at at Michigan and the Associate Dean for Research for the School of Information. I also direct our Center for Social Media Responsibility.
1: So excited to talk about that, especially with public engagement and social media being what we talk about so often on this podcast. But I want to ask you first, can you tell us a little bit about your research and in what areas your work focuses?
0: So my whole career sort of, uh, you know, looking back at it, I would say the whole career has been about how information from other people and about other people can make our lives better. I did some of the early work on recommender systems, like you go to Amazon and it says, people who bought this book uh, also bought that one, maybe you'll be interested in it. Um, that the Amazon's very first version of their recommender system came from a uh, you know, commercialization of a research project that, that I was part of. And I, I worked on reputation mechanisms, so things like eBay, um, before you buy from somebody, uh, what was other people's experience like buying from this person? Is it safe? Uh, So information from other people, about other people, uh, has been kind of a a running theme. Most recently, I've been focused on uh, not so much what are the great things we can get from sharing information with other people, but how do we limit the bad side of the social information sharing uh, while preserving the good? Uh, At at our Center for Social Media Responsibility, we've developed um, two metrics for tracking the health of of our online information ecology. One is called the IFI quotient, and the other, which is not yet released, is called the hot speech metric. The IFI quotient measures what fraction of user engagement on Twitter and Facebook goes to IFI news sites, those sites that don't have good journalistic practices. So it's sort of a measure of how, how much attention is going to the bad sites. And we're developing something we call the hot speech metric, where hot is, well, you know, hot, <laughs> uh, things that are inflammatory, but it's also an acronym, H for hateful, O for offensive, T for toxic. So it's gonna it measures the fraction of, of public comments about current events. And so we take a basket of comments about each day's news uh, on Reddit, Twitter, and YouTube, and we see what fraction of those are hateful, offensive, or toxic. And so some of the things that we've been doing at the Center for Social Media Responsibility. um, I also have a big project in collaboration with other universities and companies. um, It's part of the National Science Foundation's Convergence Accelerator. And our project is trying to help the social media platforms do a better job of enforcement on their misinformation policies. So they they all have these misinformation policies, you're not allowed to, you know, you're not allowed to put out false information that, that hurts people, but they're not very good at enforcing those policies. So we have a way of uh, uh, that we think will help them to be faster, more comprehensive, and more consistent in their enforcement.
1: Thank you so much. That's so fascinating. You recently co-authored a paper with your colleagues at the School of Information Center for Social Media Responsibility that investigates how social media users are engaging with content on platforms like Facebook and Twitter during crises, for example, like the war in Ukraine, and the increase in flight to news quality. Can you talk about that research and tell us about the findings?
0: Yeah, uh, sure. Yeah, that's one of the things we found from tracking the iffy quotient over time. The iffy quotient, remember, is the fraction of attention from the public that's going to the iffy news sites, the ones that don't have good journalistic practices. And we can we get that measure every day, actually, going back to two thousand sixteen. And you know, people might enjoy the entertainment value of those iffy sites, just like you know, it used to be fun to. Look at the National Enquirer headlines when you were in the grocery store uh, checkout line. But when there's something really important and big going on, it seems that people feel like it's important that they actually get better information, and the iffy sites get a smaller share of attention. So it happened for a couple of weeks. We were able to measure it. It happened for a couple of weeks at the beginning of COVID lockdowns, that the there's kind of a flight to quality, uh, less attention to the iffy sites, more attention to... To the mainstream news sites, and then it happened again the week after the uh, January 6th storming of the U.S. Capitol. Uh, at least on on Twitter, we were able to measure that uh, that flight to quality, and it happened this year for the few weeks after Russia invaded Ukraine. So it's, it's I think it's kind of heartening, you know, people choose better quality information sources when it matters more. But I should say that the that these effects are relatively small, so. Uh, you know, on February twenty-fourth, the, the eve of uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, ten point three percent of Twitter's engagement with with uh, news stories was was from iffy sites, and that that went down to about eight point seven percent in the succeeding weeks. So there's a a couple of percent decline, but it's not like people completely gave up the iffy sites, even even in a time when when the events were momentous.
1: And can you? Talk about the importance of being informed by trusted news sources and and not those iffy sites and share any ways that social media users can ensure that they're receiving, you know, real information and aren't being misinformed.
0: Well, for individuals, I think the biggest thing is to realize that things that seem too outrageous to be true often aren't true. I guess it's the old adage, if it's too good to be true, it, it's uh, it's not true. This is If it's too outrageous to be true, it probably isn't. But there was, a, there was a, an interesting large-scale study out of MIT in 2018, and it showed that false information got shared more than true information. And it kind of makes sense because the things that are more surprising or more outrageous are more interesting, so they get shared more. But on average, things that are more surprising are less likely to be true. So that would be the, I guess, the first thing is, you know, just be, be suspicious um, of things that that seem very unlikely to be true. They probably aren't. And once you're a little suspicious, then the best strategy is to do what some Stanford researchers call lateral reading, or what I like to think of as triangulation. So don't just read the article more deeply, and see whether you know it seems credible, and and look at the site, and does the site you know, have good graphic design. And instead of doing that, look outside the article. So take some key phrases from the article, plug it into a search engine, and see what other sources are saying about the same topic. And of course, check that those other sources are ones that you trust. What's, what's the harm of uh, of misinformation? So there, there are harms that, that have been documented from, from misinformation. Misinformation about health things, and they Take actions that are harmful to their personal health. You get misinformation about, you know, somebody's doing something bad uh, at a pizza restaurant, and and vigilantes go and show up at that restaurant. And uh, I think I think just this week, you know, somebody decided to blow up some the Georgia Stone version of Stonehenge uh, because people have been putting out uh, stories that it's the work of the devil or something. Uh, so you know, people take real-world actions in response to to this misinformation, and in some uh, scenarios of ethnic conflict, people have, people of have, uh, you know incorrect, you know, false stories go around of of uh, somebody has disrespected our religious symbols and or or whatever, and and uh, and people go and kill people from from the those other ethnic groups so uh there's there's definitely real world consequences to the misinformation there's I sort of alluded earlier that the you know sometimes it's ha- it's harmless fun to 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 read about the aliens uh, you know while you're waiting in line at the grocery store but uh, it does it does have have real world effects,
1: thank you. Your research regarding how people are impacted by the filters on digital search activity was recently cited in an In Queensland article that takes the view that the days of camaraderie over internet innovations are over and explains how it seems to divide people more than bring them together. So, can you provide insight on this research and talk about how filters can isolate people in information bubbles?
0: Well, I'm a little skeptical of the idea of filter bubbles. It's been a, an idea that's been around for a while. It's the idea that people only get exposed to information that matches their ideological predisposition. But the best evidence seems to be that most people who are politically engaged actually get exposed to a fair bit of information from contrarian sources. They may not process it ideally, but they they have exposure to things that challenge their opinions. I think what that article that you mentioned was was lamenting, was maybe a different kind of fragmentation. You know, that like we don't have a sense that we're all in this together anymore, either about hard times or tragedies or together in awe of Mother Nature or human features. You know, we managed to put a person on the moon, human feats of engineering. One of the positive side effects, I think, of having only three or four channels, TV channels, like when I was a kid, that everyone's paying attention to the same ones, was that there were more occasions when everyone was exposed to the same events and with similar perspectives. Of course, there's a, there's a downside to that as well because the mainstream, the non-mainstream voices just weren't heard. There, there are benefits and drawbacks of uh, the free-for-all that we now have on the internet.
1: Thank you. So are there any resources that Individuals can use to fact check information or any other advice or tips that you can share before we wrap up the podcast for social media users?
0: Yeah, I want to share one other perspective that we have various media literacy efforts for kids, for adults, and I would say they're all focused on getting people to be skeptical. Don't be fooled. And of course, some of my advice today contributed to that. But the danger is that we end up not trusting anything. Or we try to do our own research on topics for which we don't have sufficient background and we end up making wrong conclusions. Um, So what we really need to do is figure out when we should not be skeptical. Who is it that we can delegate our trust to? And we need to figure out sources that are generally trustworthy and when we need to trust them. The society can't function if no one trusts anyone else and I and I think the the key to that is going to be institutions that are long lived and thus have reputations to preserve like say the University of Michigan or the New York Times you know they have reasons to be more trustworthy than short-lived entities because we have a lot to lose um and there's you know this trend now to to re- individual reporters putting out their newsletters instead of being affiliated with with newspapers and um that you know may get us a, a certain level. Certainly, after somebody, on you know a reporter on Substack has a few thousand subscribers and they're making a living from it, they they may have some some incentive not to to ruin their reputation. But uh, de- definitely, I think these long-lived entities are going to be the key to to deciding you know being able to trust the entities. I I'd like to remind myself that most of the people I encounter. Are trustworthy and like to do good deeds. So if I don't expose myself to to any risk from strangers, I would be losing out on a lot more than if I generally do trust. But not everybody's trustworthy, and also not every information source. So I think what our what our information ecosystem is going to need is is ways for people to to decide who they should trust, and then and then do be trusting.
1: So as we wrap up, I like to ask each expert who joins us on Michigan Minds, what is one takeaway that you hope everyone listening remembers from this conversation?
0: I'd say even more than trying to be skeptical about every piece of information that you encounter, I would say craft your own personal information environment in a conscious way. So get more information from sources that you consider more trustworthy, and then keep reevaluating how trustworthy they are. Yes, that would be my takeaway.
1: All right. Well, thank you so much for joining Michigan Minds and for sharing all of this very insightful and important information with us. We really appreciate your time.
0: Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Michigan Minds podcast, a production of the University of Michigan. Join the conversation on social media with hashtag umichimpact.